you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. It's the stuff of nightmares. The kind of thing urban legends and horror movies are made of. The idea that another person could be living in your house for a lengthy period of time unbeknownst to you, until one night when you happen to come across a stranger in your very own home. Several horror movies have dealt with the concept of people living in a home's attic, walls, or basement, often with malicious intent. But for one man in 1941, this is just what happened, with deadly consequences. This is episode 35, The Spider-Man of Denver. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Since about the middle of September 1941, 71-year-old Philip K. Peters had been living alone in his house at 3335 Westmont Creef Place in Denver, Colorado. He was married, but his wife, 68-year-old Helen Peters, was in the hospital recovering from a broken hip, and their children were all out of the house and living in different cities. Since he was on his own for the next few weeks at least, neighbors were helping out the retired railroad auditor by inviting him to their homes for dinner, or cooking him meals and sending him over to the house. Nearly five weeks later, on October 17, 1941, the elderly man was going over to the home of the Rosses, who lived across the street, for dinner. But he didn't show. The neighbors waited a bit, and when he still hadn't shown after about an hour, Mrs. Ross went over to the darkened house. Receiving no answer when she knocked at the door, She thought he might have fallen asleep, or maybe even hurt himself. Mrs. Ross got another neighbor, Doris Burke, to help her get into the Peters' house. When they gained entry, they found that the kitchen was splashed with blood, and in the front room lay the body of Philip Peters. His head had been split with a blow from a heavy cast iron stove shaker, which which is a sort of handle used in old coal-burning stoves. Peters' cane lay beside him. Apparently, the old man had struggled with his killer before he was slain. A registry of Colorado deaths, though, records Peter's death as having taken place on the 18th, but this might just reflect when the coroner's examination of the body was complete. It seemed a nigh-inexplicable crime. Captain James E. Childers and several other policemen of the city combed the house. Initial motive was thought to be robbery, but they soon turned up hundreds of dollars squirreled away in various locations, which prompted them to rethink that motive. But anyway, 
How had the killer gained entry to the house? None of the ports of entry showed signs of a break-in, and the back door was locked from the inside, as was confirmed by Ross and Burke. During the investigation, the police noted a small trapdoor leading to a tiny attic crawlspace, but that trapdoor too was locked, and they judged that as too small to allow passage. A motive of revenge for something was also considered, but this angle too fell apart upon examination since the police couldn't find anyone who had any grudge against the elderly man. There were a handful of suspects picked up in the days following the killing in Weld County, just north of Denver. Two vagrants had been arrested along Highway 85 near Platteville. Both in their 60s, John Martin and George Lynch were both quickly released. Any connection to the Peters case was a long shot, and it was quickly determined they had no criminal past. Helen Peters returned home on February 1, 1942, and in the past few months, no progress had been made in regard to her husband's murder. Within a few weeks, however, she was again hospitalized, and returned to the house once more, this time in April, in the company of two nurses, one for daytime and one for overnight. The daytime nurse was Edith Clark, wife of a retired sheriff. Several times, she said, she had heard footsteps in the house, and items around the place would go missing or end up in a strange place. Food of Mrs. Peters would be disturbed when she hadn't touched it. The nighttime nurse, Hattie Johnson, also heard odd noises in the house and complained often. And it wasn't just the nurses. A button installed in Helen's bedroom, which rang a bell downstairs, for summoning the nurses when needed, began ringing one day. One of the neighbors heard it and went over to the house to see what the matter was. He was surprised to find Helen Peters sitting in her living room. She was fine. There was no way that the woman, injured as she was, could have rung the bell upstairs and then gotten downstairs so quickly. Finally, Edith Clark frantically phoned the police about unusual goings-on at the house. Just a few minutes ago, I heard a sort of tapping... I had heard it before, but I thought it was only the woodpeckers, but this time I walked into the kitchen, and I saw the door to the stairway that leads upstairs slowly open. A foot came out, and then I saw a thin white hand on the door. I screamed, and the man ducked back into the stairway, and I heard him running up the steps. Police came out and searched the house, but came up empty-handed. They stayed there for two days, but they saw no convincing evidence of an intruder, so they left. But well and truly creeped out, Edith Clark resigned. Shortly thereafter, still hearing noises on occasion, Hattie Johnson had left as well. So within a month of arriving back home after getting back out of the hospital the second time, Helen Peters was on her own again. She moved into the home of her son Philip Jr. in Grand Junction, Colorado, and the house stood vacant once more. But the reputation of the house continued. Police still got calls from neighbors occasionally about the bizarre goings-on. Lights seen occasionally, faces seen in windows, and particularly vile smells. It quickly gained a reputation as a haunted house. In July 1942, the Denver Police Department, having received several calls, stationed Detectives Roy Bloxham and Bill Jackson at the house. On July 30th, Bloxham and Jackson saw one of the curtains moving. Making their way into the darkened house, at first they saw nothing. Then Bloxham checked a closet and saw a pair of legs disappearing into the tiny trapdoor that had been noticed during the investigation into Philip's murder. 
The detective grabbed and pulled. A tall, gaunt man tumbled out. As Captain James E. Childers later wrote, he was the strangest looking human I have ever seen. He was a tall man, just under six feet, but thin as a wilted weed. His dirty hair hung low over his ears, and his skin was the dirty, unwashed gray of an overcast sky. When the man was taken to the police station, he was fed, and he gave his name as Matthew Cornish. At first he said he didn't know anything about the Peters murder, but after a bit of questioning, he broke down and told him that his actual name was Theodore Edward Tonys. He also made a full confession to the murder, saying, I killed him because he caught me robbing the icebox. He described how he was downstairs rummaging through the freezer when Peters, who had been at the hospital visiting Helen, came back and found himself face to face with a tall gaunt man in the kitchen. The two began fighting, and in the ensuing struggle, Peters broke his cane. Coney said that he found an old pistol lying around, the rust at 44 found by police, and hit Peters over the head a few times. He believed he had knocked him out, and was on his way back upstairs when he heard the man moving around downstairs. Whereupon he went back downstairs, found the iron shaker handle, and beat Peters to death. I don't know why I hit so many times. I guess it was just the hatred I'd been storing up for years against people who had the things I'd always wanted and could never get. Helen said she remembered a man named Ted Coney's from some 30 years before. He had been in the same music club as her husband. And it was confirmed that this was the man. Hello, listeners. I'm Jaden McKell, and welcome to Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, true crime, and riddles from the ancient world are all things to expect when you tune in to Straight Up Enigmas. Like the time we discussed the mysterious death of Alyssa Lamb, or share terrifying true stories from real people about sleep paralysis and shadow people. In one of our most recent episodes, I told the story of Debbie Kent, the sister of my dad's best friend from high school, who was abducted and murdered by serial killer Ted Bundy. Join us every Tuesday and dive into the world's weirdest riddles, unsolved cold cases, and ghostly encounters. You can find our Straight Up Strange episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you get your podcasts. He had been born in Beloit, Wisconsin, some sources recount his birthplace as having been someplace in Illinois. In the company of his mother, he came to Denver in 1899 when he was in his late teens. He left after a couple years and wandered around for a little bit, returning to Denver a few times. On one of these occasions, he met Philip Peters. Eventually, he settled more permanently in Tonawanda, New York, working as an ad- at an advertising firm. In April 1941, he returned to Denver once more, having lost his job. He lived rough on the streets for a few months until September, when it started getting colder. Coney's went to Peter's house to get some food, and to see if he could maybe find a place to stay. But Peter's wasn't there. So Coney's let himself inside, looked through the refrigerator, and then set about finding, looking for a place he could stay. Eventually, he located the trapdoor in the ceiling that led up to the tiny three-foot-tall crawlspace with no real ventilation. Telling of the first month in the house, he said that 
Every night I would listen at the hole until I heard him snoring, and then I would crawl out and go through the icebox, and I would take just enough so it wouldn't be too noticeable. I would carry it back to my nest and eat it there. I found parts of an old crystal set in one of the closets and a pair of earphones. I fixed it up so it would work, and I listened to all the newscasts, music, and everything. I used to beat it down to the bathroom and even shaved with the old man's razor. He also cut into the electrical system of the house and rigged together an outlet, as well as made a small space heater out of a toaster. Unfortunately, Coney's didn't bathe during his almost year-long tenure in the Peters house's crawl space, and this, combined with the facts that his so-called nest had no ventilation and that he kept jars of his own waste in there with him, the smell was truly revolting. And in fact, when police officer Fred Zarno investigated the hole, he vomited. Here he lived for a few months. He said that at first, when I heard Peters downstairs, I'd keep so still I'd almost hold my breath. Then I got bolder. I used to shadow him from room to room. It was a sort of game. It gave me a sort of thrill. It was the first time in my life I'd ever had anyone at my mercy. Then came that fateful evening when he was confronted by Philip Peters as he went through, through the refrigerator and icebox and was even making himself coffee. I thought that I was going to lose my shelter. Peters didn't recognize me though. I guess I've changed a lot in 30 years. I saw an old revolver hanging on the wall and I grabbed it and I hit him on the head. He fell, but he got up and headed for the telephone in the dining room. He said he was going to call the police, so I followed him and hit him again. I was, I was trying to find a vase in which I thought he had hidden some money when I heard him opening a drawer in the downstairs bedroom. I picked up the stove shaker and went in there and hit him. I don't know how many times I hit him. I just kept on hitting him until he didn't move anymore. After that, I got some food and went back to the attic. Everything would have been alright, and Phil Peters would have been alive today if he hadn't caught me robbing the icebox. It was him or me. After the murder, rather than flee the scene, Coney's crawled back into his nest. In fact, when the officers were in the house investigating, he had been sitting on the trap that were holding it shut. It was miserable hot in the summer, and my feet froze in the dead of winter in that attic, but it was all part of the price I was willing to pay. I can't tell you why I stuck it out. I guess it was mostly because it was a world all my own. I used to go down and look out the windows and watch the postman come by. No one's written to me in 25 years. Whenever I saw people on the street, I hated them and would go back to my attic. But Coney's also loathed his existence in the crawl space room, calling it a nightmare, a hellish, terrible nightmare, and said, even said that he had contemplated suicide or turning himself into authorities on several occasions. Theodore Edward Coney's was judged sane enough to stand trial by Dr. Bradford Murphy. He pled not guilty to first-degree murder, but he didn't actually stand trial until the end of October 1942. His defense led by Foster Klein, sought to avoid the, de the death penalty in this case, saying that the combination of Coney's sickly nature, desperation, and an extreme case of cabin fever rendered him essentially incapable of harboring the essential elements of murder, premeditation, malice, deliberation, and intent. Due to his mental state, when confronted by his reluctant roommate, 
he became like any other animal at bay. When the verdict was handed down, Coney's had avoided the death penalty, though he still faced life in prison at Colorado State Penitentiary. He had been the only witness in his own defense. A statement by Coney's after the trial is rather sad and sums up his own feelings on his fate rather nicely. Now I feel safe. I'll have a better home than I've had in years. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.